Please open your Bibles with me to the Old Testament book of Esther. Esther uh, chapter 4. It's where we are this morning. We uh, are back today in our uh, Looking to Jesus series. And, um, and then we have a couple of weekends through July where Pastor Kyle is going to uh, pick up this series as well. Uh, so be sure to uh, come prepared for that through the month of July as we continue on our journey from the beginning of God's Word to the end of God's Word. And the purpose of our series is to see uh, that for all of the people and for all of the stories that we read of in God's Word, that the Bible actually tells only one single story. It's the story of redemption. It's the story of salvation that is uh, fulfilled perfectly and completely in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we see this again today in God's Word in our passage in Esther chapter 4. So let's read uh, God's Word. Let's read Esther 4. Uh, we're going to spend the majority of our time focusing on verses 13 to 17. Uh, but to give us some context, let's read Esther 4, starting at verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews." Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish." And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. If you're familiar at all with the larger story of Esther, you know that this is quite the narrative. 
Uh, if you were to sit down and read this whole story from beginning to end, all 10 chapters in God's word, you might even walk away from this reading wondering to yourself, why is this story even in the Bible to begin with? It has various forms and degrees of immorality, different forms of pride and violence look at first as though they are going to be rewarded, not to mention that there is no mention of God at all within the entire book. You can read the entire 10 chapters and God's name is not mentioned even once. But also in the book of Esther are these twists in the plot of the story. And these ironic reversals where it looks like everything is doomed to destruction only to have something happen at the very last second that totally turns things around. That's a little bit of the story of Esther and it primarily revolves around two people, Esther and her older cousin Mordecai. And one of the main lessons that we learn from this narrative is this, God's people must risk living for God even when the world does not. God's people must risk living for God even when the world does not. And you say, well, what do you mean? Well, let's look together at the bigger story within this book of Esther. Almost 100 years before this happened that we just read in chapter 4, God's people have been taken into exile in Babylon, but now the people have been freed. Some of them have returned to Judah in their homeland, which is what the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah cover. But some of those people have stayed in the land of captivity and they have lived among the Persians, which is what the book of Esther covers. So the story begins in chapter one with the king. His name is Ahasuerus and he throws a huge party for all of the important people within his kingdom, the cream of the crop, the top of the top within his kingdom. And this party for the king lasts six months, like six months of nonstop party. And at the end of it, Ahasuerus summons his queen her name is Vashti, and he summons her to parade before all of his buddies, but she refuses to do it. The king is so troubled by this that he gathers all of his important counselors around him and asks them what to do, and they all tell him in unison that it is time for the queen to go, primarily because they don't want their wives doing to them what Vashti just did to him. And so the search for a new queen begins, and that's where we meet Esther. Esther's parents died when she was very young, and her older cousin Mordecai uh, be, uh, begins to take care of her and raises her as if Esther were his daughter. When Esther is much older, she gets forced into the king's twisted idea of a beauty pageant to find a new queen, and Esther ends up winning the whole thing, and she becomes the queen of Persia. The problem is that Esther is Jewish, and nobody else knows that. And Mordecai, her older cousin, encourages her to keep that little tidbit of information in her back pocket for now. A little while later, Mordecai is sitting at the right place at the right time, and he becomes aware of a plot to kill King Ahasuerus, and he lets Esther know, who then tells the king in Mordecai's name. And though the king usually rewards people for things like this, he does not reward Mordecai at that moment, and the whole incident seems to be forgotten. Fast forward now to the start of chapter 3, and a guy named Haman is elevated to a position of great power within the kingdom. The problem is that Haman is more proud and arrogant than the most proud and arrogant person that you could ever think of, and Haman uses his new position to convince the king to approve a decree to force everyone within the kingdom to bow down to Haman. Everyone in the kingdom seems to be okay with that, except Mordecai. In fact, every time Mordecai and Haman see each other, they just stare each other down like the two alpha dogs that they are, each wanting to mark their own territory. And Mordecai never bows down, he says, because he is Jewish. 
Well, this infuriates Haman, who in a classic case of total overreaction, puts together a plan to kill every Jewish person who is living within the kingdom. He goes and he gets the king to sign off on it, and then Haman organizes a certain day as the time when anyone in the kingdom can kill any Jewish person within the kingdom and confiscate all of their property. So essentially, Haman is getting everyone else to do his dirty work, and he buys off the king as a way of getting it done. This, of course, throws all of the Jewish people in Susa into a panic, and they're all trying to figure out what to do and how to survive, which leads us to this defining moment in Esther chapter 4. And so I want you to see here in this passage three reasons why we as God's people can risk living for God in a world that does not. So three reasons why we can risk living for God in a world that does not. Here's the first reason. God is always in control even when it doesn't seem like it. God is always in control, even when it doesn't seem like it. This is one of the main points, one of the main threads that goes all the way through the book of Esther, that even though God's name is never mentioned in the entire book, it is clear that God is not just the author of the story, but God is actually the hero of the story. See, none of what's happening in this story is happening by coincidence. Okay, and none of what happens in your life or in my life happens by coincidence. There is no such thing as human coincidence. There is only God's sovereignty. And we see God's sovereignty through the rest of this story as we keep going. Esther knows that she cannot go into the king's presence without being invited, and so she just kind of happens to see the king in passing one day. She puts herself in a place where she knows that the king is going to be, and when she sees him, she invites the king and Haman to a feast at her house just for them. So they go, and they have a great time. And then Haman is walking home later after the feast, and he sees Mordecai, and it happens Again, Mordecai does not bow down to Haman. And this infuriates Haman even more, and he kicks his plan into an even higher gear, and Haman goes straight to the king to get permission from the king to hang Mordecai the very next day. And the king says, sure, whatever. He's not really totally engaged with what Haman's doing. And so in another case of total overreaction, Haman builds gallows 75 feet high for the sole purpose of hanging this one Jewish man who will not bow down to him. Well, flip ahead to chapter 6. That very night, the king can't sleep. And so he orders his servants to read him the chronicles of his kingdom, a little light bedtime reading that would certainly put any of us to sleep. Chapter 6 and verse 1 says this, On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of the memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has bestowed, been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. So the king reads that Mordecai has saved his life, but nothing has been done to reward Mordecai. And at that exact moment, as they are talking to Mordecai, Haman walks in to see the king. And before Haman can say anything at all, the king looks to him and says, hey man, get it, okay? Took you a little while, it's hot in here, I get it, okay? So, so he walks in, the king says, hey man, and what do you think should be done to honor the one whom the king wants to honor? And Haman is so proud and he is so arrogant that he is thinking to himself in that moment, wow, the king must want to honor me. 
And so Haman says, well, for starters, let's get the royal robes that the king has worn, and let's get the horse that the king has ridden, and let's put a crown on the guy's head that the king has worn, and then let's lead him through the city with people shouting his praises and someone to go before him and say, this man is the, king, is the one whom the king delights to honor. The king delights to honor this man. And then the king turns to Haman and says, Haman, that is a great idea. Let's do all of that for Mordecai. And he says, I want you to be the one who's going to do it for him. Well, Haman is devastated. And later that same day, Esther has invited King Ahasuerus and Haman back to her house for a second feast. And the king says to Esther at the start of chapter 7, what do you want me to do? He says, I'll give anything to you, even up to half of my kingdom. And Esther says this in chapter 7 in verse 3. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted to me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would, not, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. So listen, Esther stands up in that moment and she takes a risk before the king. She stands up and she saves her people. But in the process, she also reveals that she is part of the Jewish people who once, not too long ago, were in exile. And now everything begins to turn. The king storms out of the dinner in a fury when he learns what Haman has done. Haman stays back to beg for his life from Esther, at which point the king walks back into the room and he thinks that Haman is assaulting Esther. The king by this point has had enough. He is in a furious rage that anyone would consider doing this to his queen. And he's like, man, what am I going to do with Haman? At which point one of the king's servants turns to the king and says, well, Haman just built these massive gallows in his backyard for Mordecai doesn't look like he's going to need those anymore and the king says hang him on his gallows and from there Esther and Mordecai work to save their people from certain destruction like we have to see this this is the first reason why we can risk living for God when the world around us does not because God is in control even when it doesn't seem like it like just think about this. Follow with me through the story of Esther just one more time, all right? Think about it like this. Is it any coincidence that Queen Vashti just so happened to say no to King Ahasuerus and he divorced her at the beginning of the story? Or is it any coincidence that Esther just so happened to be raised by her cousin Mordecai who would impact her life in significant ways years later? Or that Esther just so happened to be part of the group of young women who were taken to the king? Or that the king's servants just so happened to whittle their way through about 25 million women within the kingdom of Persia and settle on Esther, whom at that point no one had ever even heard of. Or that Mordecai would just so happen to be in the place where he would overhear the plot to kill the king. Or that the night before Mordecai is supposed to be hanged, it just so happens that the king can't sleep. And that 
the story of Mordecai's heroism is being read from the exact book that the king needs to hear at that moment, years later, when he needed to hear that and act on it, or that Haman just so happens to walk into the room at the exact right time, or that he just so happens to be the one to parade Mordecai through the city in the king's honor, and that when the king orders for Haman to be hanged, the only gallows available just so happen to be the ones that Haman had built to hang Mordecai on the very next day. Like, there is no way that we can read this story, this amazing story of Esther from start to finish, and not realize that God's fingerprints are all over the place. Like, he has always been moving people and pieces into places that we sometimes cannot see and more often we do not understand. But this has always been God's story. God has written the story. And the same is true for your life and for my life. Your life is part of the greater story of God. And he is always moving people and pieces into places that we sometimes do not see and most often do not understand. But God knows. God knows because God is always in control, even when it doesn't seem like it. I mean, how often do we need to hear that truth when we look around us in the world in which we live? Like, you can, you can look at the world that we live in. You can look at the country that we live in. And there is no question that we live in perilous times. We hear phrases like nuclear war, ethnic cleansing, dictators, tyrants, Supreme commanders. I mean, these are phrases that frequently mark the headlines of our news almost every day. Times when ethical and moral boundaries seem to be constantly moving around issues like gender neutrality and same-sex marriage and abortion and euthanasia and poverty and immigration and racism and the legalization of certain drugs and the list goes on and on and on. And to know that many of you are going back into workplaces this week And some of you are even going back into family situations this weekend, and there is not always a lot of agreement around these particular things. And yet, one of the great anchors of our faith is that no matter how out of control things seem to be around us, God is always in control, even when it doesn't seem like it. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Daniel 2, verse 21. He, God, changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. A.W. Tozer wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. Outstanding book. And in that book, he compares God's sovereignty. He compares the reality that God is in control of absolutely everything. He compares God's sovereignty to an ocean liner leaving New York and headed for England. The people on board, Tozer says, are free to do whatever they want, but they are not free to to change the course of the ship. Tozer goes on to write this almost 60 years ago. Different time, different culture, different things going on, but the same issue at its very core. Listen to what he says. The mighty ocean liner of God's sovereign design keeps its steady course over the sea of history. God moves undisturbed and unhindered toward the fulfillment of those eternal purposes which he purposed in Christ Jesus before the world began. Listen to this. In the moral conflict now raging around us, whoever is on God's side is on the winning side and cannot lose. Whoever is on the other side is on the losing side and cannot win. Just think about that for a minute. 
Think about your life through that grin. Think about your trials and your tribulations. Think about your, your difficulties and your setbacks and the question marks that you have within your life. Do you process those things in your life through the lens of, I am on God's side, and because that's true, I cannot lose? Like, do you process these circumstances in your life with the understanding that God is sovereign over it, even though you may not totally get it? Because you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, we have the absolute certainty that God is always in control, even when it doesn't seem like it. Which actually leads us then to the second lesson. You can never save your life for yourself, so lose your life for the kingdom. You can never save your life for yourself, so lose your life for the kingdom. Notice again, Esther chapter 4 and verse 13. It says, Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. You know what he's saying there? Any notion that we have of safety within our lives is a myth. It's a false sense of security. There's nothing safe about any of our lives. Like just, just try and picture here how this conversation must be unfolding between Esther and Mordecai. It's, it's like they're separated by some distance and Mordecai sends back this message and he says, Esther, listen, there is no guarantee at all that you are going to survive this. Even in this little cocoon of safety that you think you have up there in the palace. So since you have no guarantee that you're going to survive this, you may as well go out risking everything for the right thing. Like, don't we know this to be true within our lives as well? Like, from our limited, human, finite perspective, things in this life change so quickly. Like, things can change just like that. We get a phone call to tell us about an accident. A routine checkup leads to a life-altering diagnosis. Someone walks into a school and starts randomly shooting. A visit to the boss's office ends with a notice that your job has been terminated. People that we love gone long before we even had the chance to say goodbye. Like we know that things in this life can change so fast. This life could be gone. Just like that. And no matter how hard you and I try, you can never save your life. You cannot even save elements of your life for yourself. And if that's the case, which the Bible repeatedly says that it is, then why not spend our lives risking everything for the right things? Charles Thomas Studd, better known as C.T. Studd, went to be a missionary, spent the better part of his adult life as a missionary in China, Africa, and India. He was converted to Christianity along with his brothers, and at the moment that he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ, he said this, right then and there, joy and peace came into my soul. I knew then what it was to be born again, and the Bible, which had been so dry to me before, he says, became everything. When he decided to give up his lucrative career as a cricket player in England to pursue a career as a missionary, he sold all of his earthly possessions, gave them all away, and when he did that, people began to line up at his front door and tell him how absolutely stupid that was for him to do. And when people did that, he responded by saying, I know that cricket would not last, and honor would not last, and nothing in this world would last, but it was worthwhile living for the world to come. 
In his 20s, he served in the China Inland Mission, where he married missionary Priscilla Livingstone Stewart. They lived in China for 10 years, but moved back to the UK because of ill health before serving in India. Later, Priscilla and the couple's four daughters stayed in England, while CT worked in Central Africa until his death in 1931. And according to his biography, in one of his last letters home, separated from his family by thousands of miles, CT Studd wrote this. He said, as I believe I am now nearing my departure from this world, I have but a few things to rejoice in, and they are these. Number one, that God called me to China, and I went in spite of utmost opposition from all my loved ones. Number two, that I joyfully acted as Christ told that rich young man to act. And number three, that I deliberately, at the call of God, when alone on the boat in 1910, gave up my life for this work, which, which was to be henceforth not for the Sudan only, but for the whole unevangelized world. My only joys, therefore, are that when God has given me a work to do, I have not refused it. That is risk. About 30 years later, completely separate story. November 1964, anarchy breaks out in the Belgian Congo. Missionary J.W. Tucker knew that he was at risk, but he stayed exactly where he, where he was because God had put him there. One day, a mob attacks and kills him with sticks and clubs and broken bottles. He very easily could have left the area and gone and found safe shelter somewhere else, but he didn't. And so, after the locals kill him, they take his body, throw it in the back of a truck, drive a good distance, and then toss his corpse to the crocodiles in the Bomokandi River in what is now the Democratic Republic of the Congo. J.W. Tucker had risked everything, yet he seemingly had nothing to show for it. 30 years later, in the 1990s, John Weedman, a close friend of Tucker's, was in the country by then known as Zaire, and learned how God had used the risk that J.W. Tucker took to stay where he was for the sake of the gospel. The Bomokandi River flows through the middle of the Mangbido tribe, a people virtually without the gospel at that particular point. During a time in their civil war, the Mangbido king becomes so distressed with the violence, and so he appeals to the central government in Kinshasa for help. The central government responds by sending a man called the Brigadier, a well-known policeman of strong stature and reputation who came from the region of Isiro. But what the government did not know was that J.W. Tucker had won the Brigadier to the Lord just two months before he was killed. So now, the Brigadier is determined to reach the Mangbidos with the gospel. Being a relatively new Christian, he does his very best, but he sees no response. And then one day, he hears of a Mangbido tradition that said, if the blood of any man flows in the Bomakandi River, you must listen to his message. So the brigadier calls for the king and the village elders to come together. They gather in full assembly to listen to his address. Some time ago, the brigadier begins, a man was killed and his body was thrown into your Bomokandi River. The crocodiles in this river ate him up. His blood flowed in your river. But before he died, he left me a message. The message concerns God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to this world to save people who are sinners. He died for the sins of the world. He died for my sins. I received this message and it changed my life and it can change your life too. And as the brigadier preached, the spirit of God descended on that place and people began to fall on their knees and cry out to the Lord. Many people were converted that day and since that day, thousands of Mangbidos have come to Christ and dozens of churches have been planted as a result of the message from the man whose blood flowed in the Bomokandi River. Now let me ask you, what do you think? Is it any coincidence that God just so happens to send the one man who was saved just months before 
through the faithful witness of a missionary who died because of his commitment to risking it all for the call of Christ. Like, why should you risk living for God in a world that does not? Because, as C.T. Studd says, nothing in this world will last. But it is worthwhile living for the world to come. So think about it. All the possessions, all the savings, all the RRSPs, all the RESPs, all the RESPECTs, and, and all of that, like all of that stuff, right? Like, like nothing, nothing will last. So why not leverage those things to be used for other things that will turn the attention of all peoples to the greater things? Luke 9, Jesus says, Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever who loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? See, you can never save your life. You can't even save elements of your life for yourself. So lose your life for the kingdom, which leads Mordecai into lesson number three in verse 14. Look at chapter four in verse 14. He says to Esther, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Why should you risk living for God in a world that does not? Because lesson number three, every person has a God-ordained purpose. Every person has a God-ordained purpose. Now, this is not some warm and fuzzy teaching to make you feel all good inside. This is Bible truth. This is gospel truth that should give you some sense of mission and purpose inside. Like God has created you in his image and for his glory. God has redeemed you in Jesus Christ with a purpose. The Spirit of God has gifted you with intentionality. You are not and you never have been a mistake. You are eternally loved by an infinitely glorious God who has put you in an exact place with specific people and for a particular purpose. Every person has a God-ordained purpose. I mean, look at this again, verse 14. Mordecai is filled with faith. He is convinced, he says in verse 14, that relief and deliverance will come from somewhere. Like, it will come. It's not a question of if it will come. It's a question of how's it gonna come? When is it gonna come? But it will come. And so right now, at this point in the conversation, he is looking to Esther, and he is saying to Esther, Esther, you are there right now. And nobody else can do this but you right now. And if you don't do this right now, then it might be too late for all of these people. Like God will accomplish his purpose. Make no mistake about that. He will accomplish his purpose. But part of the way that he accomplishes his purposes is by putting you and me in positions where he can use us to do that. Like you gotta remember that it's not like Esther has been in the kingdom for five days at this point and, and her cousin Mordecai's now given her this inspirational pep talk to keep her going. No, like she hasn't been in the kingdom for five days. It's more like she's been in the kingdom now for about five years and some of the novelty of being in the palace and being the queen is probably worn off by this point and now it's like Mordecai's looking to Esther and saying, hey Esther, hey, remember how God plucked you, a Jewish woman, out of the 25 million Persian women in the kingdom and made you the queen? 
and he put you in this position and gave you some measure of influence with the king? And could it be, Esther, that after all of these years, that this situation is the exact reason why you are there? Like some of you could be sitting in this room right now and you're thinking to yourselves, man, I know exactly what Esther feels like. Like, I know exactly what she's thinking, what she's going through, because I feel like I'm in a situation where God has placed me somewhere, and and I've been there for a little while, but I don't really know why I'm there. Like, how do I find out God's purpose for me where I am and where God has put me? And we need to understand that the answer to that question is actually very simple, but for many of us, it might take a shift in our thinking. There is one overarching purpose to every single place where God takes us, and that is for us to shine the light of the gospel into those dark places places. Like, think about this. The reason that God has planted you on the assembly line where you work or in the office that you manage or in the classroom where you teach or wherever it is that you work, the reason that God has given you the gift and the grace of homeschooling your kids or whatever it is that you do or wherever it is that God takes you, the reason is primarily so you will take the good news of the gospel to those places. Like, we need to understand that taking the gospel to those places is not our secondary purpose. It is not an add-on when you happen to have the time or the opportunity. The gospel is our purpose in those places. Why? Because all of these other things are going to fade away. And the gospel will last. And the gospel will endure forever. So sharing and living the gospel automatically becomes the primary purpose for every place where God takes us. So then, have you considered that the primary purpose that God has allowed suffering and trials and illness into your life is because those are the avenues that God is using to open up to you a network of people in your life that you would never have otherwise known. And all so that you could tell them as best you can that there is one God alone who loves them. And there is one Savior alone who died for them and rose again for them. And there is one Spirit alone who will live inside of them and give them life and hope and joy and peace like they have never before No. Like regardless of where you and I go, regardless of what you and I do, our God-ordained purpose is to lay down our lives for the kingdom of God, which means then that this single point of application brings everything together. You can risk it all for God in this life because God has removed all risk for us in the life to come. Okay, so let me say that again. You may want to jot this down. You can risk it all for God in this life because God has removed all risk for us in the life to come. So verse 15, Esther tells Mordecai to gather all the people together and they're going to fast for three days and then she's going to go to the king and, and she's doing that with the full realization that this could be the very last thing that she does. Like her life could come to an end in that moment on that day. Your life is not your own. You were bought at a price. So you can risk it all for God in this life because God has removed all risk for us in the life to come. And and maybe you're sitting here right now and you're saying, well, what do you mean by that? Here's what I mean. Follow me one more time through the story of Esther. 
God arranged for a deliverer to be in place long before the people ever knew that they needed one. But then the Jewish people in Susa learn that they have been sentenced to die, and so they need someone to intercede for them to the king. The problem is that not just anyone can saunter into the presence of the king uninvited. And so through a series of circumstances that only God himself could orchestrate, he sends his deliverer at just the right time and in just the right way. And when that time came, this deliverer identified with her people and put her life on the line in order to rescue them from what looked to be certain destruction. And because of the deliverer, the sentence then is reversed and the people would no longer die, but they would live. And all of that points us to God, who arranged for a deliverer to be in place long before we ever knew that we needed one. And we too have been sentenced to die because of our rebellion against the eternal king, and we need someone to intercede for us. Our problem, however, is that not just anyone can saunter into the presence of the king uninvited. And so, through a series of circumstances that only God himself could orchestrate, he sends Jesus Christ, our deliverer, at just the right time and in just the right way. And when that time came, this deliverer left his throne in heaven to come to this earth so that he would identify with his people. And not only did he put his life on the line, but he willingly laid his life down and then he rose to life again in order to rescue his people from what looked to be certain destruction so that this death sentence against us could be reversed and we would no longer die but we would live and so now because of what Jesus Christ has done for us we are invited into the presence of the king of kings by turning away from our sin and believing in him and surrendering the remainder of our lives to him so that when we do we can now enter into the presence of the king at any time and for anything the question is have you done this loved ones you have not always known the king you have not always known God. And you cannot just saunter into his presence whenever you feel like it. The only way to know God is through his son, Jesus Christ. Have you done this? Do you know him? Tim Keller said this about the book of Esther. He said the, re the, the reader will be led to ask again and again, what in the world is this story doing in the Bible? And the answer is an important one. It's the gospel. The Bible, unlike other faiths, is not about emulating moral examples, Keller says. It's about a God of mercy and long-suffering who continually works in and through us despite our constant resistance to his purposes. That's what this story is about. It's about the gospel. And that is why we can risk living for God now when the world around us does not. Because God has removed any uncertainty about our future. God has given us the hope of a future that we know is absolutely certain. And so that's why we can go from this place today. We can stand in worship in this place right now and say, God, here's my job. Here's my house. Here's my finances. God, here's my marriage. Here's my family. God, here's my kids that I feel like I need to have some measure of control over because I want them to be safe and I want them to be taken care of. God, Here's this fleeting sense of security that I think I have. Here's, here's the safety that I want. Here's my desire to be comfortable. God, here's these couple of things within my life that I know that you're leading me to do, but for so long I've been fighting against you and pushing it back and pushing it back. God, here is my life. 
Like you can risk it all for God in this life because God has removed all risk for us in the life to come. Think about this. To live is Christ. To die is glorious gain. So who knows? Look at your life. Look at the circumstance that you're in right now. Who knows whether you have not come to this place in your life for such a time as this. As John Piper once said, some of you right now are standing on the verge of your Esther moment. Do not miss your Esther moment. You can risk all of the temporary things right now because God has removed all of the eternal risks later through Jesus Christ and eternity is our priority.